when I, when I was in seminary, I had a, a mentor who eventually became a friend named John. And I went to a Bible study in his home uh, for a number of years. And uh, John's story is that when he was in his 20s, early 20s, uh, he was living in, in uh, the UK, and uh, he fell in love with a girl, uh, Anne. And uh, they, you know, had a very short, like, dating thing. They, they got engaged, and um, right uh, about a month before they were to be married, Anne was diagnosed with MS, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, which is a, it's a terrible disease. It's, um, it's brutal. But the thing is, is even though she was diagnosed, uh, they didn't know how long it would take for, for the MS to, to progress or whatever. And so um, for all they knew, they would have a long life together. And the thing is, my buddy John, he's a, he's a romantic. Like he's, and everyone in their 20s is a romantic. Uh, when you're in your 20s, like, you know, everything is possible. Uh, nothing, nothing, everything out is out there and, and, and you're, you're caught up in the moment. And so uh, a month before they're married, uh, Anne takes John aside and says, John, um, I've read about what this disease is going to do to me. And because I love you, I want you to walk away. Because what's going to happen is going to be brutal. At some point, we don't know when, but it's going to be really, really hard. And I love you too much to put you through that. Now, my buddy John, like I said, total romantic, says, okay, honey, great. I'm going to pray about that for two days. And so he did. He prayed about that for two days. Then they got married, and um, they started a life together. It was wonderful. They had kids. Um, the MS, uh, no, no progress really until uh, about the year uh, 2000 um, when they were, uh, I think, in their like, uh, late 50s, early 60s. And um, at that point, uh, it became harder and harder for Anne to walk. Um, and living in the UK was bad uh, because the, the weather there is horrible. Um, actually, the weather pretty much everywhere except for here is horrible. But it's especially bad in the United Kingdom. And uh, so they, uh, he took a job out here. It came out to Pasadena um, to bring her to a climate that would be better for her so she could um, be more mobile. And uh, they, they lived here. And, and during the, the, the 10 years before I knew them, or the five years before I knew them, uh, she steadily um, got worse and worse. And so by the time that I met John and Anne, uh, Anne was confined to a wheelchair, could not speak, um, and uh, lived with a, a full-time care assistant in, in John's home. In a, uh, we were in a Bible study at one point, and in a, in a fit of pique, I, um, I, I finally asked him, I said, John, um, do you ever think about, you know, quitting, walking away? And he said, yeah, of course, all the time. I'm human. Um, at this point, uh, even with a full-time caretaker, John was responsible for really everything, uh, morning and, and night especially, and um, a tremendous burden. I mean, it, really, really difficult. Uh, and loneliness that goes with it because, you know, he couldn't speak to his wife. Um, and so he said, yeah, I think about it. That's an extreme example, okay? But there is a question that all of us at one time or another have to wrestle with. And that is this. We know God's loving. He'll forgive us. No matter what we do, there's nothing, nothing so bad that God won't forgive you. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then why do we continue to pursue a life of holiness or a life of doing right? This is an extreme case, but John at one point in the 60s said um, to have and to hold in sickness and in health. He made that vow. 
And he believed and he knew that it would be wrong for him to break that vow. It would be wrong. But, but, it might make his life happier. One, one, yeah, that's, I mean, no one wants to commit that sin, right? But one thing, where you, you, but, but after that, then, then things, he would have a chance for, for happiness. And of course, he could go back and God would forgive. And I believe that. God would forgive. I don't think that there's any limit to God's forgiveness. And there's people here in this place right now who are dealing with things that are really, really struggling, really hard. And, and you're, you know that you have an option. And that option is to do something wrong. And you know, because God forgives, that even if you do that, God will still forgive you and still love you. And if that's the case, then why do you do the right thing anyway? And I think we're going to have a really deep biblical answer to that question today. And so I invite you, this is one of my favorite passages in 1 John. Um, I invite you to, to read with me uh, this text, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Look at what kind of love the Father has given us. We're called God's children. This is, uh, again, this is my translation of the text. If you're familiar with an older translation, it'll be a little bit different, especially in the last verse, but I'll explain all of that. Look at what kind of love the Father has given us. We're called God's children, and it's true. That's the case. We are God's kids. The reason the world doesn't recognize us is it didn't recognize Him, Jesus, when He was here. Dear friends, my beloved friends, we are already God's children, though it has not yet been revealed what we will be. We know that when he is revealed, when Christ is revealed, we'll be just like him. We'll see him as he is. And so everyone who has this expectation or hope scrubs himself holy just as Christ is holy. God's kids. That's the first thing. We're, we're called God's children. And uh, we, we shouldn't take this lightly. This is not just, uh, this isn't just him throwing out uh, random words to describe us. We really are God's kids. There's, a, there's an actual like, thing that changes in us. When we believe in Jesus, we pass from death into life. Uh, and, uh, older, um, older theology used to call it being regenerated. Your whole inside, whoever you are, changes the very moment you put your trust in Jesus. And you become somebody different. It's true. Whether you feel it or not, whether you think it or not, it really is true. You have, uh, another way John describes it, you have eternal life in you. Life that is inextinguishable, and it's never going to go away, and it's part of you as soon as you believe. Um, I, I just want to grab to show you where this, uh, this comes from um, in, uh, in, 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 John, in the Gospel of John. This is the very beginning of the Gospel of John. The light was in the world. The world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. So Jesus comes, but the world doesn't get Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. The light came to his own people, the Jewish people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children. This is key. Born not from blood, not from desire or passion, but born from God. You really did experience a change. There's something different in every single person here who has believed in Jesus. You have in your blood God's DNA. You don't, you're, you're, you're different now. And even if you don't feel it, even if you don't think it, it's true. It's a fact. God's declared it. He's done it. And that's it. That settles it, as we might say. There's nothing more to say about it except that that's the case. I'd like to go back to um, our text. We're already God's children. Okay, we're done. That's, we, we've been changed. And it has not yet been revealed what we will be someday. Um, that's because we're kids. All right, so even though you should believe in Jesus, and what happens is you become a little child of God, little, little baby, little infant, 
you know, cute, cuddly child of God. And, and, and everyone who knows when, they've see, when they see a baby, they know that um, whatever the baby looks like now is really no indication at all of what that baby is going to become when that baby matures and grows up and becomes an adult, right? And that's exactly what jo- uh, John's saying right here. I have a couple of examples of this, um, I think. Yes. Benedict Cumberbatch. He's an A-lister. My dad loves him. Um, I, you know, he was good in Sherlock. Uh, Doctor Strange was okay. But man, when he was 11 years old, would anyone have guessed that he'd be a Hollywood actor? Look at that guy. I mean, his parents were looking at him and they were like, best case scenario, you know, you have a pocket protector. I mean, I don't know what to make of that kid. And what a goofy grin. Uh, or this one, I made fun of her um, a couple months ago. Everyone got mad. But wow, talk about ugly duckling syndrome. Taylor Swift, wow, look at her. Uh, she, the braids, I think it was a good call getting rid of the cornrows at some point. It really, she, she blossomed. Imagine, if you will, I, had a, I was going to put a, a picture of myself uh, instead of a celebrity. So I went to my parents' house, and I started looking through all the old pictures. But the problem is, I've been photogenic my entire life. Um, <laughs> Some people start up here and go down here. Some people start here and go up there. But I've just been at a 10, like, the entire time. So the illustration wouldn't work. And if you want to get proof of that, there is a picture of me over there when I had the uh, the late 90s butt cut, Uh, the the part in the middle. It's uh, pretty fantastic. (laughs) The point is, is, whoever you are, right? When you're looking at your kid or when you are a kid, there's no, there's no way to look at that child, that person, and know who they're going to be when they grow up. There's something um, mysterious and, and almost magical about the way maturation takes place and the way that we move from, from who we are to the person that we become. I mean, it, it's almost inconceivable for me to think about my 10-year-old self and say, I'm the same person. There's continuity there, but the changes have been so radical, so transformative, that if you knew me then, and many of you did, you would have no expectation that I'd be here doing this now. It's, it's shocking. It's, it's utterly unbelievable in a lot of ways. That's, that's exactly what, what, what John's pointing out in this text. He, he's, saying, he's saying, we are already God's kids. We're little kids, and we don't know what we're going to be just yet. It has not been revealed what we will be. And then he says this, he says this, but, but we do know something about it. It's not complete mystery, it's just a, a little mystery. He says, we know that when he, Christ, is revealed, we will be just like him, because we'll see him as he is. We'll see him as he is. When I read that, it strikes me as a little bit like a fairy tale, right? Um, I think of uh, Rapunzel, where... Um, this rogue, this, this character who's a, who's a thief and a, and a naughty guy, and he's never been a good dude, and, and he's, he's traveling through the forest after stealing some stuff, and he looks up and he sees this tower, and there's this, this beautiful girl, and, and she's, her hair is tumbling out of the tower, and she's, she's brushing it, you know, and straightening it out, and he looks up at her, and in one moment, in one moment, he looks up, he's transfixed, and he changes instantly, right? He's overcome with love and excitement. And so he knows that from this point on, he's a different man. He's going to be changed. He's, he's a rogue. He's nasty. But he sees her. And by looking at Rapunzel, her love transforms him instantly. And he becomes a hero and a great man for the rest of his life. He gets a nine to five job, becomes an accountant, provides for his wife. He, he does all the things that you would expect of a true American hero. 
That's kind of what it sounds like, right? It's like, it's like we, we can almost imagine that when, when Christ is revealed, when Christ is revealed, we're going to be just like him. We're going to be caught up in his beauty, caught up in his goodness, and it's going to transform us and make us just right, perfect, because we'll see him as he is somehow just gazing on Christ makes us like him. I want to suggest that that is totally not the way we should be reading this. That is not this story. And I want to argue instead that this story is actually a scary story. I want to show you why. The danger of divine encounters. If we're familiar with the way that it happens in the, in the Bible, the way that when human beings encounter God, it's, uh, it's really scary stuff. And I want to show you here. This is Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. He's talking to God. And, but he's worried. He's worried that, that this God is going to be like all those other gods who's just going to show up a little bit but then fail. He's a weak God. And so Moses wants to test him, make sure this God's great. And so he says, Moses says, Please, God, show me your glory. Then Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But then God said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. It goes on. And, and then Yahweh said, here's a place right next to me, and you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'm going to put you in the, in the cleft, in the, in the crack of the rock, and I'm going to cover you up with my hand while I pass, and then I'm going to take my hand away, and you shall see a little bit of my backside, but my face you shall not see, because if you do, it'll kill you. When uh, Moses comes down the mountain, he comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got the, the, t- the Ten Commandments. And, and Moses did not know the skin of his face shone. He was glowing while he talked with God. And so when Aaron and all the other Israelites, when his, uh, his, his, his family and friends see him, they, the, the skin of his face is glowing, and they're afraid to come near him. They cower because he's been changed just by seeing a little tiny sliver of God's glory, not coming face to face, just a little piece of God's back has been enough to just make him look like a ghost. In the New Testament, um, this is the story of Jesus' transfiguration, another example of when people come close to God in his glory, in his absolute glory. While, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. That's, um, so there's uh, Jesus and his three um, closest disciples, and actually um, uh, Moses and Elijah are there with him. They appear with him, and a, a, a cloud uh, comes over them, and, and, and they hear this voice, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when those three mortal men heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Stand up, don't be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, everything had disappeared except for Jesus. The, the, the glory had passed on enough to keep them alive. I, I just, it, it's worth taking a moment here to just think a little bit about God's glory, God's majesty. You know, we live in a culture, um, we live in a culture where uh, we can, like, people can predict the weather. Um, poorly, I would give them about a 50, I mean, it's a little better than 50-50, but they do predict it. Some of them say that they have a formula, they can figure out how to change the weather and the climate. Um, if you do this or that, they can change the Earth's climate 
Um, that's amazing. We have um, all kinds of technology. We have cars, planes, submarines, spaceships, drones, which are a little bit creepy. Um, we have an immense control over the natural world, right? And, and as technology increases and, and becomes more and more engaging and powerful, we become more and more distanced from the natural world. We become more and more distanced, honestly, from the majesty and glory of God. I have a friend who uh, visited um, France and went to one of those um, really big cathedrals uh, that the Catholic uh, Church made in the medieval era. And he came back and he was telling me about it. And, and he was like, you know, I, I didn't really get it. I didn't understand why you would spend all this money and time. Literally, when they're building cathedrals, it would take so long that the people who started it would be dead before it was completed. And it'd be huge, and you'd walk in, and there's light everywhere. And, and he was like, I don't understand why they would do that. And then I walked in on an afternoon when the sun was coming in through the, um, through the, the stained glass windows and bathing everything in light. And for a, for, a, for a brief moment, I was caught up again with the majesty and glory of God. I was reminded of how big and how, how large and how glorious God is. We, we almost, maybe you don't, but I, I almost never think about this. I do my best not to think about it. Uh, because the, the bigger and more glorious and majestic and, and powerful and great God is, the smaller and less significant um, I become. Moreover, moreover, if I'm really honest about how big and how great and how mighty the creator of the universe is, it becomes very abundantly clear that the very fact that I can call him father is an act of his love and grace and condescension to me. Think about that. That was close to people in the pre-modern era. They understood that because they looked up and they didn't understand anything. They were just like, whoa, this place is crazy. They recognized how far away God was. And so when they found out that God loved them, they were like, boy, that's good news. Because it seems like he should just be off and crushing us and vaporizing us. In fact, we're, we're told in the scriptures that, that if he did, if he just sat down in front of you and revealed himself to you, you'd be vaporized, blown away, incinerated, destroyed, gone. And so when we go back to our text, when we see, we know that when he is revealed, we'll be just like him because we'll see him as, we hit, as he is. That should be a shock. It should be that when we see Jesus as he is, we should get blown away. And yet, here we're told that somehow we're going to become just like him. We're going to be transformed into him. This is because we now share God's DNA. We have his eternal life in us, and so we won't be extinguished by seeing him. Something will change in us. And, and then listen to what John says right after that. He says, okay, if that's the case, if it's the case that when God reveals the Lord Jesus Christ and we look at him, we're going to be transformed into just like him just like he is, if that's the case, everyone who has this expectation scrubs himself holy just as Christ is holy. If you're familiar with an older translation, you hear uh, everyone uh, who has this hope purifies himself just as Christ is pure. Um, the reason I've edited it there is because, number one, hope. This is not like, I hope uh, the Knicks win the, the championship this year. Because everyone knows that's not going to happen. And it's like, oh, yeah, I hope, you know. This is, this is not that kind of hope. This is the kind of hope where it's like, it's like um, I really hope my parents will be, for, be there for me when I run out of money. Right? 
That's the kind of hope where I'm like, well, we've been here before, and we know what happens, so uh, I have a good reason to think that that hope is, is, is going to be, is going to be, it's going to get fulfilled. This is an expectation. When I fall flat on my face, my parents pick me up and take care of me. That's their job. Apparently, I'm going to have to start taking care of them. <laughs> to the nursing home. No, I'm just kidding. I love them. I would, but they're definitely not living with us. That's... Okay, they can live with us. Jeez, tough crowd. Gosh. Everyone who has this hope scrubs himself holy. The, word, uh, the language there is agnizo. And really in Greek, it's, uh, it's the closest thing in Greek to a verb form of holy. So if we had it in English, it would be holyifies himself. Right? We, we don't have that. That's, that's, not a, that's not a word we, we have. But I, I've done my best to, to capture it. And not only is it holyifies himself, it's also the word that is always used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to talk about what priests do before they get ready to worship. They holyify themselves. They, and, and one of the things that they do, I, I want to show you uh, a little bit about what that looks like here. This is uh, from Leviticus. Um, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother, don't come any time into the holiest of holies, before the, the bema, mercy seat, lest he, not bema seat, the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. If you're not ready and you walk in, boom, you're gone. And so this is what happens. This is just a brief um, part of it. But thus Aaron shall come into the holy place. What? With the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram, a burnt offering. Put the holy linen tunic and linen trousers on his body, girded. This is really just armor. It's armor to protect him from the holiness of God. And therefore, at the very end, with these holy garments, he, he needs to make sure he washes his body in water, scrubs clean before he puts them on. He's coming face to face with the glory of God, and it is going to vaporize him unless he scrubs himself holy to get ready for the power and majesty of the God he serves. Likewise, John is saying, hey, if you believe this, that Jesus is coming back, and that you're going to stand before him, and you're going to see him as he is, you need, to, you need to get this thing cleaned up, man. Because if you don't, it's going to hurt. We have a, uh, a ritual at my home. Every night, um, before the children are put to bed, they have an opportunity to brush their own hair. Um, by, as anyone who's ever seen a small child knows, uh, by the end of the day, it looks like the child has been headbanging all day. And I didn't know this because I was a boy and I didn't have any sisters, but apparently women, wow, their hair, it's like, because they've got a lot of it and it's long. Um, so, you know, rat's nest, whatnot. Um, and so as a result, uh, it's very important. Again, apparently, I, I don't think I ever brushed my hair as a kid. Did we ever? I don't think so. I, I think it was just... If we did, it wasn't like some... I don't remember it. Anyway, it's very important before the girls go to bed that they have their hair brushed looking queenly. And so, Alice especially, is afforded an opportunity 30 minutes before bed to comb her hair brush her hair. Invariably, she elects not to take advantage of this time. 
and decides instead to play or, you know, beat up her sister or whatever while mom and dad are downstairs. And then, you know, the time for bed rolls around, and Erin walks upstairs, and she sees two kids whose hair is, like, sticking out seven ways from Sunday. It looks like it's got glue and mud and sticks in it, and she screams at them, Why haven't you brushed your hair? And so what she does is she goes and she grabs it. We actually have a number of different brushes. One, some of them are very nice and soft. We also have a comb that um, there, there's only space in between each uh, nail of the comb for one strand of hair to fit. It's, a, it's, it's made out of like platinum or something. And um, so she grabs that and then she puts her um, foot against Alice's back and then rips it like that. I'm not, I'm not making any of this up. This is not hyperbolic. This is 100% true. At this point, um, what I, what's, I've already left the home um, because I know what's going to happen. There's going to be a blood-curdling scream, um, weeping, gnashing of teeth, wailing, um, and I don't want to deal with it. So I'm outside looking at the stars. Uh, there's a nest with some birds. I can still hear it vaguely, but it's far enough away that it doesn't bother me too much. Um, and so after she's, you know, one or two, like, like that, and ripped uh, that through Alice's hair, then she goes and grabs Olivia, wrestles her to the ground, and then does that. Um, I've watched it a few times. It's really horrible. Um, but it works, and at the end of it, at the end of it, their hair looks beautiful. I mean, gorgeous, perfect. And they're ready for bed. Now, every once in a while, Every once in a great, great while, Alice remembers to brush her hair. And so what does she do? She, uh, she walks to the, 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 she looks and she sees the platinum comb. She's like, no. And she picks the uh, one. It's, it's soft. It's made from, I don't know, cushions or whatever. And she pulls that and she just begins. Is that, can you make a comb out of, it's really nice. It's bendy. It's got those bends in it. And she begins to do this. Because she wants to be beautiful. I mean, Alice is like, she's always, when you take a picture, it's weird. Um, anyway, she's like, and so she's doing this. And, and she, the knots are there. The knots are really bad. But she takes her time with them and, and kind of one at a time, just dit, dit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And it takes her a while. She can't get this done quickly. Um, it takes her, you know, 15, 20 minutes to really do a decent job. And so she's just working it, working it, checking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when she's done, she's only five and a half. So it's not perfect. She doesn't do a, a perfect job, but it's pretty darn credible. And so when Aaron walks up, Aaron walks up and sees, oh, Alice, you brushed your hair. She takes out the platinum comb, just gives one of these, and it hurts a tiny little bit. Alice goes like that, but then it's good. It's good. And then they, they, they stand together, and they look in the mirror, and they're beaming with joy. We're a happy family again. Everything is right with the world. Then Alice calmly walks into bed and goes to sleep immediately. It's a beautiful moment. And it's only ever happened in my imagination, but I believe the day is coming when we will have it. Brush or be brushed. That image, I think, is what the Christian life really is right now for us. We have an opportunity in this life, you know, before bedtime, right, when the lights go out, we have this opportunity to take this messed up thing and try to, try to get some of the knots out. We want to be beautiful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and we have this time, and it, it, it's a slow process. It's not 
easy. It doesn't happen overnight. It's difficult, and it changes. You know, one knot gets out, and you realize there's another one over there, and it's, 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 it's a grueling process in some ways, but it really is an opportunity, an opportunity to get the knots out. And the idea is that, yeah, we're not going to be perfect, and the hair is not going to be just right. We're not going to be ready for our Cosmo shoot, but it's, it's going to be pretty good. And so when, when the Lord Jesus returns, he looks at us and says, here I am, and we look at him, and, and, and it just takes a, just a quick one just to get the knot, that last little bit out. It's perfect. It's a joyous, glorious reunion because we've been, we've been scrubbing ourselves holy, getting ready for his return. Alternatively, alternatively, we can wait till the lights go out. And then the Lord Jesus shows up. He's like, what have you been doing? The apocalypse is here. And just like that. Now we're going to have beautiful hair. It's, it's going to be gorgeous. But man, it's going to hurt to get there. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life, you're, you're going to be like him. The question is, is that an opportunity or is that a threat? When, you, when he appears, is that going to be like, yes, finally, I, I'm so excited, I'm going to be beautiful just the way I'm supposed to be, or is that going to be like, oh my gosh, run away, hide in the closet, there's no hope, because it's going to be, yeah. Brush slowly now. Instead of having those knots ripped out later. We began with the story of John. John, uh, John and Anne. Um, Anne died uh, seven years ago, I think. Um, she would periodically get pneumonia because you know she was confined to a, a wheelchair, and uh, he would get her to the hospital. But um, and through many times, it's been very close. But seven years ago, finally, she succumbed, and um, and John was very transparent, very honest about it. It was, you know, it was on one hand a tremendous loss because he'd been spending, you know, huge chunks of his life caring and supporting this woman, caring for and supporting this woman for a long period of time. Um, but it was also a tremendous um, blessing, both for him and for her. Anne was not in a comfortable situation, and we don't know how much she could understand or hear at the end or, or know, but it wasn't good. And so there was a, a kind of release and a kind of peace that came with the end. When I asked John the question before Anne died, do you ever feel like running away? I was just curious to what he'd say. I just wanted to know. Because in my heart of hearts, I knew the man would never abandon her. I knew this guy, inside and out. I knew that he would never, ever run from this woman. I just wanted to hear him be honest about who he was, because I'm a jerk. That's, that's what happened. But the reason I knew that is because I know that John, to this very day, believes in his heart of hearts that the Lord Jesus will return. That he is going to spend eternity with Anne, with the Lord Jesus, with all of us. And he is preparing himself on this day for that reunion because he wants it to be a joyful reunion. He doesn't want it to be a time of ripping the knots out and feeling hurt. He wants it to be a moment where Every one of his hopes and dreams is fulfilled when he finally is, in, in totality, the person he's wanted and shaped himself to be his entire life. John is slowly brushing out the knots. Every person here has an opportunity this week. You know, look, it's, it only takes 30 minutes at the end of the, the night 
just a half an hour to get those, those knots out. We have an opportunity in this life to dedicate portions of it, little slivers of our day and our lives and our weeks and our times, hours, the time that we wake up or the time that we go to bed, to sit and be honest, reflective about who we are and who we're going to be before Jesus Christ when he returns. We have an opportunity in this life to just dedicate a little portion, maybe just 30 minutes a day, to saying, who am I? And when the Lord Jesus appears, what is going to be painful? I know who he is. I know his goodness. What is going to hurt me? What is the knot that's going to be pulled out of my hair when he appears? And just 30 minutes a day, just 30 minutes, say, pray about it, pray through it, make a plan to change it, to transform it. Because man, you will not regret that time when you enter into eternity. It's better to slowly brush out the the knots now than to have them ripped them out later. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we uh, come to you as people who are not perfect. We come to you um, as people who struggle to make the right decisions, to do right before you and before each other. God, I pray that we will set before our eyes your beauty, your holiness, that we'll be reminded that you're coming in the person of Jesus Christ, that you will be revealed as you are, and that that is a tremendous opportunity and a a threat. God, I pray that we will be people who who shave off the edges and, and, and set things right before you now so we can have a joyous reunion with you, with you when you return. Father God, this we ask in the name of Jesus who covers all of our sins, whether we fix them or not. Amen.